Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler, and I'll bring in uh, the panelists in just a second. So uh, today we've got a little bit of a uh, sparsity on the panelist side. We got Justin Dobbs with us. How you doing, Justin? I'm doing well, thank God. You doing yeah. okay? Yeah, I'm doing well. And so it's just Justin and I uh, for right now. Um, Dan is not going to be able to join us this week. Um, he's not feeling well. And uh, Scott might be joining us, but uh, we'll see if he's able to get on a little bit later on. Um, so uh, we're just going to keep going with what we did last week. Uh, last week, we were working on the Gospel of Mark. And I think it's just helpful to talk through the, the Gospels, read through the Gospels. We have, we have four different accounts of Jesus's life, um, and all of them kind of highlight different aspects or different areas, different ways that are helpful of looking at Jesus, understanding who Jesus is. Um, and Jesus is the, the, the substance of the gospel. And if you don't understand who Jesus is, you don't understand the gospel. And so it's just helpful for us to remind ourselves who Jesus is. And, and also maybe for some of our viewers, first time kind of exposure uh, to Jesus is just uh, life-changing. You see that happen in the gospels. You see that happen still today. So, so I think it's valuable for us to be able to work through this. Um, we made it partway through, pretty much most of the way through chapter two. And we're kind of in this this last section of chapter two of Mark, where you kind of have these different kind of short parables or short kind of ideas illustrating who Jesus is, what he's capable of, and, and those sorts of things. And so, uh, Justin, you want to just kind of summarize, because this all kind of fits together. You want to summarize verse 18 through 22, where we ended last week, and then we'll move on in chapter two. Yeah, sure. Uh, Jesus in Mark 2, 18 through 22 uh, he's beginning to meet some uh, some resistance in his confrontation with the Pharisees. <clears throat> uh, the Pharisees' disciples, John's disciples, they end up approaching Jesus' disciples about this question about fasting. And you can see that they're starting to uh, weigh Jesus' character, his teaching. Uh, he, he seems to be very prominent. And so he doesn't fit with what they had thought a good religious teacher would do. Uh, Jesus has not been teaching his disciples to fast. Now, we'll see in Matthew uh, chapter 6, I believe, where Jesus does talk about when you fast. So fasting is important. Jesus is going to talk about fasting. But here he makes the point that you don't understand who I am. And if you knew who I am, uh, then you wouldn't be uh, thinking about fasting. You'd be thinking about rejoicing. And so he talks about the appropriateness uh, of fasting and the appropriateness of rejoicing. If you see Jesus as the bridegroom, uh, as the one you've been waiting for to come for the festivities, uh, basically, if you see him as the Messiah, then uh, you'll rejoice. And then he, he talks about these two illustrations, uh, sewing unshrunk cloth on an old garment or putting new wine into an old wineskin. Uh, it's just not an appropriate thing to do, but also it seems to, seems to symbolize the power of the gospel, that coming to Jesus is not just sort of a patchwork uh, Thing that we do, where I need a little of Jesus's teaching in my life, and that will take care of my problems, or I need to take a little bit of Jesus's goodness into my life, uh, that'll ruin us, and it'll ruin our thinking about the gospel. Instead, it's a whole new way of thinking. So Jesus says, you've got to come to me and totally shift everything on your head. So the Pharisees, uh, John's disciples, seem to really resist, and we do too, this complete surrender of our ideas about what's true, uh, about religion, about our relationship with God. Jesus says this is a whole new thing, 
and, and you, you've got to really humble yourself to listen to what I'm saying. So that, that kind of wraps up the end of chapter two uh, until we get to verse 23 through 28. There's going to be one more thing here that they're going to confront Jesus on. So I don't know, anything else you see through verse 22? It was probably a, a really long summary. But. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So I'll read this, uh, this last section here on this last confrontation, at least in chapter two. Chapter three is going to hit off with another confrontation Jesus has with the Pharisees, which is a huge theme. Uh, in the gospel. So I'll read uh, chapter 2, 23 through 28. It says, one Sabbath, uh, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he was saying to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of, of the presence, which it is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who are with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so this is a really interesting interaction uh, that, that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Um, basically just painting the picture, you got the Sabbath day, which was the sacred day for the Jews, the day of rest. God had set this aside in the law and really kind of illustrated it from creation that the, the work week or the, or the week would end in a day of rest. That's how God chose to do it in creation. That's how he instructed Moses to teach the Israelites to live their lives. Uh, and, and this was supposed to be a blessing for the people of Israel. Um, but what we see here in the Gospels, how the Pharisees had kind of constructed the Sabbath, it wasn't really a blessing anymore. It became more of a burden uh, more of this this thing like what Jesus talks about in Matthew 23 of tying up heavy burdens on the people that that are that are too much to bear but they're not able uh, or they're not even willing to follow through with that and so the Pharisees confront Jesus when they see his disciples are plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath now what's really interesting about that they their confrontation in verse 24 is they're saying your disciples are not doing what's lawful on the Sabbath um, this is interesting on multiple levels, because when they say it's not lawful, what do they mean by that? Yeah, I'm not sure they mean necessarily uh, you're breaking God's laws, but again, you're, you're not keeping the traditions, you're, you're not following along with what we expected a good religious teacher to do here. You're, you're breaking the Sabbath, meaning you're totally disrupting our view of how to keep the Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of the Pharisees really rules. Um, and, and this isn't against God's law. This isn't against what God had commanded or what he'd said in the law. Um, and so they're kind of upset, taking it personally, that Jesus is not following their traditions, which comes out really, really clearly uh, in Mark chapter 7, whenever we get there eventually, that that's clearly what they're focused on, not so much the commandments of God. And Jesus calls them out for that. But here, Jesus does something really kind of interesting. Um, instead of calling them out like he does in Mark chapter 7, what does he start doing to point out their inconsistencies? Yeah, verse 25, have you never read? Uh, which, can we, can we go off on a tangent for just a moment? Um, Jesus thought that people could read God's word and understand it and make solid living applications from it. Um, this, this modern notion, which is really is not a modern idea, uh, but that we can't really understand truth 
or that we can't really understand what God's saying to us, it was totally foreign to Jesus. He expected to be able to talk about the scriptures and reason through them and everybody come to uh, a common understanding. So uh, have you not read in the scriptures anything he points back to David uh, and this kind of historical occurrence? You got to put on your, your um, biblical student hat and really do some research and what, what's going on here. Uh, or I think we might misunderstand what Jesus is teaching here. Yeah, so he's he's referencing back to the story early on in David's life. Uh, and you can read about this. I think it's what, Second uh, Samuel chapter 21, um, where first, 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 first Samuel, yeah, sorry, first Samuel 21, um, where David is not yet king. He, he hasn't uh, yet kind of taken the throne. Saul is still on the throne. Um, and Saul is chasing David. He's trying to kill David. There's a lot of jealousy that's there on Saul's part, and David's on the run, and in chapter 21, he comes to the tabernacle um, and finds the high priest there, um, and he asks the high priest for some bread because um, he's with his men. They're on the run from Saul. They're tired. They're hungry. Um, they need some help, and the priest says, all that we have is the holy bread. <laughs> all we have is the bread of the presence, um, and David convinces him to let him eat the bread of the presence. And Jesus clearly points out here um, that's unlawful. David is not a priest. He's of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. He shouldn't be eating that bread, but he takes it, gives it to the men that are with him. Um, and there's just a really big kind of failure on David's part in that chapter. Um, not only does he eat of the bread of the presence, but he's clearly um, not showing the type of faith that you would expect David to show as a man after God's own heart. Uh, he asks for the, the sword of Goliath as kind of, you know, a, a weapon, which is really ironic. The sword didn't work too well for Goliath whenever David was fighting with him with the Lord on his side. Worked, worked really well on Goliath. But yeah, not... <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's just this really low point in David's life um, where he just fails on multiple accounts. And the failure actually leads to the massacre of the priesthood, um, all but one of the priests. Um, which is the priest that, that uh, Jesus brings up here, Abiathar, is the only priest that ends up escaping a couple of chapters later when Saul comes and, and murders all the priests for helping David. Um, and so it's this really low point. So what I see Jesus doing here, and, and you guys can give your input um, as well, it looks like Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The Pharisees hold David in this really high esteem. Um, and, and they had like maybe three guys that they would do that with. You got King David, the man after God's own heart, Moses, the, the giver of the law, and Abraham, their father, were just, you know, the pinnacle uh, in, the, in the Jews' minds. Um, but they would not condemn David for, you know, this action. They would point out David as being, you know, the, the, the king of Israel, the best king that they'd had and those sorts of things. Uh, and so what Jesus is saying here is, don't you realize that you don't condemn people that actually break the law, but you're condemning me and my apostles for not even breaking the law, for, for breaking your commandments um, that are here. And so that's where Jesus goes in verse 27. Like, don't you know what the Sabbath is for? Um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not supposed to be this thing that you beat the people over the head with. It's supposed to be a blessing from God. And then he also tacks on in verse 28. And by the way, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> it's my Sabbath. <laughs> um, and so, so I can do what I want here. And so the Pharisees really uh, are, are condemned by Jesus for their hypocrisy, but also for their misuse of God's law in trying to beat people with it rather than using it as a blessing. That's what I see here. Do you guys have 
have more thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Think that, I don't think that David's all in the clear here. He also lied to the priest, misrepresented the situation, uh, then then involved priests, and then led uh, to the priest's death as well, which was Saul's the one that killed him. But David's uh, not real good here. But there's, I, I, I think there's, it, it's a little bit like maybe the text in John where it talks about the judges, you know, I said, ye are gods and about the judges. And he says, you're upset with me because I said I was the son of God, but kind of like, but you're not upset with this text where it said these judges. It's, it's kind of pointing out some inconsistencies, I think, with the Pharisees. Yeah, and, and this, this may be new for some of our listeners today. Um, because at first glance, it may seem like Jesus is saying, look, David was hungry and he took this food just out of the necessity of it. Um, and it wasn't lawful, but really the situation demanded, what was David going to do? He needed to eat. And so Jesus and his disciples, we need to eat. So we're just taking food. No big deal. But I think, I think you're spot on here, Jonathan. That's, that's not Jesus's point. He clearly points out it is unlawful what David did. Um, and, and it does us a lot of good to go back and get this full picture of where David is mentally. Uh, he had previously in chapter 1 Samuel uh, 20, tried to get Jonathan to lie for him so that he could find out information from Saul. Uh, when he does get to the priests, he says, I'm on a super secret mission for the king. Uh, I mean, it's just this, this whole process of David trying to uh, save himself. And then when he escapes uh, from the priest, he goes to the king of the Philistines and he pretends to be a madman. And if this were a movie, we'd all go, wow, isn't David really clever for getting out of that situation? But then later you read in one of the Psalms, is it Psalm, uh, Psalm 30, hmm, need to check on that, Psalm 34, Psalm 38, um, Psalm 34, uh, where David says that his, his lips had spoken deceit he should have turned away from evil and sought peace and pursued it. He, he should have done what God said. He should have done that Psalm 34, verse 13 through 14. So David credits God for his salvation, not his cleverness. So I think you're spot on. Jesus is using this as an example uh, of the Pharisees' inconsistency. One more thing, though. When Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, um, it could be that Jesus is saying, look, I made the Sabbath. Uh, I I'm the lawgiver, so I get to decide how it's applied. It may also be that Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the rest, and my rule brings the right kind of rest. When you, when you follow me, then you'll understand what rest is. It's like that song that we sing, uh, peace, perfect peace, and there's the verse that says, to do the will of Jesus, this is rest. Je because Jesus rightly understood the law, then keeping the law wasn't a burden to him. Uh, it, it meant satisfaction. It meant peace. For the Pharisees, following their rules and their understanding of the law did become a burden. And Jesus and God had never meant for the law to be a burden. It was meant to be this uh, reward in and of itself. Scott? Yeah, they, they really had. Because, you know, a, a day of work, 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 and then have a day of rest and honor God. That's a nice thing, you know. It's and and remember that you were slaves in Egypt and, and got delivered out. 
Uh, but if you turn the Sabbath into something so tedious, now there was to be a day, the day of preparation on Friday, even going back to the gathering of the manna on Friday, collect a double portion. So you do some extra work on Friday so that you have Saturday off. Uh, and it was serious. There was a fellow collecting wood, you know, on the Sabbath, and he, and he was stoned. Um, but the, the, the Pharisees just went crazy with it. And uh, if you look at the parallel passage in Luke 6, there's something interesting there. It says, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Why does it mention that they rubbed them in their hands? Threshing. <laughs> and threshing. They're harvesting, they're threshing. Uh, I mean, yeah. So uh, one of my favorite ways to illustrate what they, what they did with the Sabbath is, is this. So it's like, um, on my screen, uh, Jonathan is to the side of me. Is that the way it is for y'all? Yep. So if I'm a poor man on the Sabbath and I come to Jonathan's house, this is some of the rabbi's rules. And I ask him, hey, can you, you know, help out a poor man on the Sabbath? If Jonathan takes a coin and goes past the threshold of his house and puts it in my hand, he just worked and broke the Sabbath. If Jonathan holds his hand out with the coin in it and I reach in, and bring it out. Jonathan didn't work, but I did. But if Jonathan reaches his hand out, but doesn't give it to me, and I pick it up without crossing the threshold, neither of us work. Or if I go in with my hand, and he puts the coin in, but it doesn't go past the threshold, it's okay. Why? Well, you, you can't be um, moving stuff in and out of a house. For instance, uh, Justin, a while back, we were moving you into your house. Uh -huh. uh, and if we were Jews under the law, would we have done that on the Sabbath? Of course not. Yeah, because that would that was work. Is carrying a coin outside the threshold anything equivalent to moving that? <laughs> no. But And so it's okay if you just went out as long as you didn't put it somewhere. Let's see if Jonathan carried <laughs> carried that little uh, copper coin out and put it somewhere. Too much work. Uh, and so you can imagine how they would have viewed. Look at that harvesting in that threshing when they took some grains and rubbed it and ate. The Sabbath was made for man. It was meant to be a good thing, but you turned it into this oppressive thing where your work it seems like it could have been a really unrelaxing day because you're you're working so hard you know work go ahead Justin. i mean this is similar jesus later and this is a number of years later jesus can be very patient with the pharisees at this point in mark two um but when we get to matthew 23 um he is going to just soundly condemn them woe to you woe to you woe to you one of the things he says in Matthew 23, verse 23, is that, um, verse 24, rather, they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So they're, they're very particular about the minute details, but when it comes to these 
big things. They've just totally missed it. And, and we might take from this, from Mark 2, that Jesus is saying, hey, ease up on this law keeping. But with your example, Scott, the, the law said nothing about any of that stuff. They were adding to it. And, and when we start adjusting God's law or adding to God's law or putting our preferences and making it law and teaching everybody like it is from God, we're creating these burdens for people and for ourselves that God never intended to be there. But for whatever he did give us, he, is, he does care that we keep what he did give us. So it was wrong for David to eat that bread. Jesus isn't making an excuse for him. But it's also wrong for the Pharisees to add to the law. So right here, the, the Pharisees are just totally missing uh, who Jesus is, and he's confronting them about their inconsistencies in order to do it. David was great in their minds. Uh, they all understood that, and they still accepted him as the anointed one, the, the, the Christ, if you will, uh, despite his blunders and his sins. And here's De uh, Jesus doing the right thing, but they're not willing to accept him. Jonathan? Yeah, and that points out an, another kind of failure on their part. What you notice throughout the Gospels of the Pharisees is they have these preconceived ideas about Jesus. Um, and so they're unwilling to see the truth, the evidences, look introspectively at themselves, like what Jesus tries to get them to do over and over. And that's a real danger for us on kind of multiple levels. If we have our own idea of what Jesus is without just being open to what Jesus reveals himself to be, we're going to arrive at false conclusions and false destinations of what Jesus expects, what, what, what kind of Lord that he actually is, and those different ideas. Um, but also just in general, that's a dangerous way to be, to uh, decide beforehand what you think about someone before they say what they're going to say, before they illustrate what they really are. Just in any situation, it's, it's just always good to weigh things constantly and be able to evaluate the truth that's behind different events. And we'll see that especially illustrated in chapter three, what Jesus does um, on another Sabbath, um, or might be on the same Sabbath, I think. Uh, in the context of, of Mark, um, that they see some evidence, but they're so angry at Jesus that they don't care. Um, and that's just foolishness to deny truth because you're angry with someone or don't like someone. And that's how the Pharisees end up being with Jesus. Let's get into that next text there in chapter three. But first, I want to mention two things. Uh, one is that sometimes there's a situation where a higher principle calls for something to be done in, in spite of a lower general principle. Um, one time when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and I'll go ahead and do the second thing I was going to say. On healing, they had ridiculous rules too. For instance, you couldn't have a bandage on. You couldn't put on a bandage on Friday if it was going to be helping the wound to heal during Saturday because it would work. So again, with that mentality, you can see how Jesus healing a man. Uh, now, how exhausted would Jesus be after letting a man be healed, you know, through the power of God? <laughs> Jesus is not exhausted, but, um, but with that mindset, you know, they'll be like, you healed a man on the Sabbath. You work, you work. And you recall when Jesus said, if your ox was stuck in the ditch, you would get it out. And this, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's a difference between you know, your, your animal falls in the ditch and it's there struggling and you help it out and going into ox removal ditch, you know, ox removal service, we work Saturdays, you know, and driving around looking for work. Uh, and, and so you might compare that. 
uh, what are we, all three of us on Sunday, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be on our way to assemble the saints and worship church with, with brethren, with, with the church we're part of. What if on the way we come across an accident and a person is stuck in a car and, and maybe bleeding out and we need to get them out of the car and help do a tourniquet and different things and get tied up with that? And should we say, well, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to miss the opening song. Yeah. You're going to miss the opening song because there's, you know, there's something that you're doing that it, it's not that you're looking to miss serving God, but there's somebody that needs your immediate attention. And ironically, the Pharisees would do that for an animal, but they're upset that Jesus healed a man. But I was really surprised to read about the Essenes at Qumran in reading their uh, rules. They said you can't help the ox when it falls in the ditch on the Sabbath. So this was actually apparently a bit of a debate or uh, a, a difference between Pharisees and Essenes. Uh, but let's go ahead and get into chapter three. Somebody take us through that section there. Yeah, I'll read uh, verses one through six here. Uh, again, Jesus entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Yeah, so there you see at the, at the beginning of this interaction, at the end of the interaction, how the Pharisees are feeling. Well, they're following and watching Jesus. Why? So they can see what he's going to do so we can accuse him. So they've already decided what they want to do. <laughs> like, we, we want to accuse Jesus. Um, and then at the end of it, Jesus heals this guy after asking them a question that they're unable to answer or unwilling to answer anyway. Um, and verse six, they go out to find a way to destroy him. <laughs> so, so they've already made up their mind. It doesn't matter what Jesus is going to do. We've decided what we want to do to him, <laughs> um, or we've decided what he is to us. And that's just, again, the foolishness that's there. Um, but from Jesus's perspective, this is really interesting. Uh, what is what does Jesus do that is maybe kind of interesting to to you all here? You know, sometimes when Jesus heals someone, uh, he'll touch them, and you know, e even when he cleanses the leper earlier um, in chapter one, uh, there was no reason to touch him to heal him, but he's showing his compassion for this person. This, this person probably had not been touched. In Right, so he had not had any physical human contact. So Jesus often would heal someone with physical touch. On this occasion, uh, he, he heals the man by not doing anything. He just tells him to stretch out his hand. So is stretching out your hand work on the Sabbath? Um, and, and the second thing about that, I, th I think is really interesting. This is the one thing the man cannot do. He has a withered hand. And to be healed of this withered hand, Jesus tells him to do the impossible. And so maybe a lesson from that is that when Jesus commands us to do something, we may think it's impossible, but Jesus enables the thing that he commands us to do. 
And so I can't stretch it out. Well, okay, the lame man can't get up and take up his bed and walk either. But Jesus is in the habit of telling people to do the impossible because he's showing his power through the healing. And that's the point. The point isn't just the healing. The point is Jesus's authority and his power, his compassion. It, it's, this is answering the question of who Jesus is, not will he solve my problems. And we're seeing clearly Jesus can tell us to do just about anything, well, really anything, uh, and he enables the impossible by his commands. I like that. Also, uh, his his emotional response. Yeah. Uh, what this is pretty dynamic. He's he's angry, and he's grieved. Uh, what what do you what do you make of his emotional response to their lack of response? One thing is. It's not wrong to be angry. There's such a thing as righteous anger. Ephesians says, be angry, but don't sin. Now, the general nature of anger, and in particular wrath, is to, you know, the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. So it's a little bit like gasoline. You know, you gotta be careful with gasoline. If you put it carefully in the tank, it can be used appropriately. If you just fill it up in the bed of your truck, you know, you're asking. <laughs> um, but there's, God gave us the ability to be angry. Most of the time we're angry, it's coming from a selfish point of view. We're a man that somebody did something to me. Now, the same thing may have happened to 10 people standing beside me, and I wasn't mad at all about that. That's too bad. When it happens to me, damn me. Well, you, you see the selfishness there. Um, gee, here's a man over here that needs help. And there, they don't want him to be helped. You know, there's an injustice and a lack of concern for the man and just bitterness and hatred. And Jesus looks at them and he's, yeah, he, he's angry. There's a place for it. And with that, I'll just make this comment as well. If you look at the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, almost all of them are a perversion of something good. In fact, even jealousy and zeal, uh, that's not two things in the list. It doesn't have jealousy one, zealous in the other, but this is the general New Testament information. What's the Greek word for zealous? What's the Greek word for jealous? Same word. There's a good place for that type of thing in a, in a bad place. Um, so if if you or I uh, tell our wife that we're thinking about asking out that waitress on the date, uh, our wife should feel jealous. It's not it'd be, inappropriate. Yeah, it'd be wrong if she weren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, if your neighbor gets, you know, a nice new truck and you didn't and you're jealous, that's inappropriate. Because one thing, that is something that you're, you're supposed to have and take care of and take in terrible vows made. And the other isn't any of your business. So idolatry is a perversion of what? Worship to God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sexual sin is a perversion of? Marriage. Yeah, um, and in going to some other things, uh, not necessarily from Galatians chapter five, but uh, vengeance is a perversion of 
justice. Yeah. And so Satan's not a creative, but he's a perverter. Hmm. And there is a place occasionally for anger. And here we see righteous anger. But we tend to take it and use it primarily selflessly and then lose our head and then sin. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, of God's response back in Genesis 6 to the evil uh, that's in the world. In, in Genesis 6, uh, verse 5, he sees the wickedness of man is great in the earth. The, the intentions and the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. God's able to see into people's hearts. And it says in verse 6 that it grieved God to his heart. And his response is wrath. He's going to destroy the world. But it's not just a, a anger. It is a grief. And so you see this complexity to God's emotions. He cares deeply for us and wants us to do right. And it hurts him when we don't. And so here's Jesus experiencing some of the same kinds of things, uh, the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees and the Herodians, um, what, what they're seeing, you know, lack of compassion for this man, but also what they're failing to see in Jesus. They're, they're not, I mean, look what they're doing in verse, uh, chapter three, verse two, they're waiting to see if he's going to heal somebody so they can accuse him. I mean, this man's doing miracles, and you're thinking, we got to destroy him. I mean, I, I, when did your brain turn off, and you stop following this? And so Jesus is grieved because they're just that hard-hearted. They're not willing to see the truth, and it's going to destroy them. Uh, you guys have anything else through verse 6? Uh, Jonathan, you want to go ahead and read uh, 7 through 21, see if we can make it that far? Yep. <clears throat> so Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee to Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. <clears throat> and when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who were had disease pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to, make, to not make him known. And he went up onto the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Bonangers, which is sons of thunder, <clears throat> and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. I just want to make one point here, uh, and then there are a number of points we could make, but uh, I, I found this a helpful passage uh, to demonstrate the difference between um, a follower and a disciple, and then an apostle. I think a lot of people are confused about what an apostle is. We're going to see that Jesus takes 12 of his disciples in verse 14, uh, and he appoints them and names them apostles. And the word apostle just means one sent. 
Uh, so this is a person who's been given a mission, he's been given a charge. Uh, we talk about posting a letter and it's the same basic word as we're, we're sending a letter. So here Jesus is sending these disciples. Uh, they have a specific job. So in order to be an apostle, they had to be a disciple. Um, so not all disciples are apostles, uh, but the apostles are all disciples. But before that, we do see in verse 7 uh, that there are disciples and then there are followers. And I think this is helpful for us to remember because sometimes we think that what a disciple is is a follower. And that's true. You've got to be a follower of Jesus if you're going to be his disciple. But a disciple is more than that. And, and I like to illustrate it this way. Um, back, we used to live in Boston, and there was a friend of ours who followed a particular bakery. Um, it was a Georgetown Cupcakes. And she followed them on Instagram. And every week they sent out a uh, flavor of the week. It was a special code. And you could walk in on Sunday. And so after worship, we'd walk two blocks down together and eat dessert before we had lunch. Uh, and then we, because she knew the special flavor of the week, she would tell us and we'd walk in and you could tell them the flavor and they would give you a cupcake for free. And it didn't matter who you were, uh, how old you were. So we're telling all the kids, you know, say, say uh, brown sugar, chocolate spice or whatever. And they'd say it and get their free cupcake. And it was great. As long as supplies last, you get the cupcake. We were followers because we really liked the cupcakes. We liked what we could get out of the bakery. But if I had had enough of that and decided, you know what, I like what they're doing back there. I, I, want, I want to learn how they're doing that. I want to be part of that team. And I walk in and say, are you hiring? Could, could you train me to do what you're doing? And then I would get a job and they would start me off at some low level position and I'd be back kneading dough or mixing batter or whatever it is. And I'd have to sign up and whatever they told me to do, when they told me to do it, I would have to come in every day and do what they told me to do. I'd be, I'd be a disciple. I'd be trained. When we're, when we're following Jesus to get what we want out of him, then we're like this crowd who's following Jesus, but we're not really interested in being trained by him. A disciple is someone who says, Jesus is my master, and whatever he tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do because he wants to make something of me. An apostle would be a disciple who the master chef or baker says, you know what, you're doing a great job. I want to open up a new shop in the north side, and so I'm going to start this new shop. You go down there and get it going. That's an apostle. So you've got this disciple follower and then the apostle. Don't be just a follower of Jesus. Be a disciple of Jesus and let him train you to be like him. So I don't know, there's a lot more there to discuss. You guys have anything else uh, through verse 21? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's something that Jesus will explicitly point out in like John chapter six, uh, after he feeds the 5,000 and they're looking for Jesus, chasing him down. Uh, and Jesus says, you guys are just here because you ate the food and, and you want more, <laughs> you want more food. Um, and that's not the kind of relationship that Jesus is looking for. He's looking for people that want to dig in, that want to follow him, that want to be dedicated uh, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I want to just talk about verse 21, which is really kind of interesting. Um, this will happen a, a couple of times. Jesus has these kind of weird interactions with his family. In verse 21, his, his family, uh, I assume uh, his siblings, like his brothers, because um, we know the most about them and kind of their feelings towards Jesus uh, during his ministry, that they didn't really believe in him, um, kind of challenged him in various different ways and things. Um, in verse 21, Jesus' own family are saying that he's crazy, um, that he's out of his mind. 
Um, that really adds a lot of weight, I think, to a later teaching that Jesus will have of the cost of discipleship, since we're talking about what discipleship is. Um, he'll, he'll tell his disciples, um, you know, if, if you want to come to me, you need to be willing to hate father and mother, brother and sister, and be willing to give that up. And um, that's powerful that Jesus says that because Jesus was willing to do that for the father and for his mission that was given to him by God. Um, to be kind of renounced by his family, be kind of the scorn of his family. Um, that will be something that a lot of Jesus's followers have to be willing to do, um, to be willing to be more committed to God than they are to their blood relatives, um, if, if that's what's called on them. Um, now, it's cool in Jesus's case, because after Jesus is killed and resurrected, some of his family turn around, um, you know, at least at least one of his brothers, James, um, becomes a pillar in the early church and and um, ends up you know standing up for Jesus and that so that's cool whenever family members do turn around and 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 want to do that but even Jesus had to face opposition from his family um, and so I think that can give strength and courage to his disciples whenever Jesus calls other people to have to stand up to opposition from family to to be faithful to God and, and willing to do that Jesus isn't just you know sending out empty words that he's not willing to do himself. Um, and I think that that's cool to, to see that he's, he's willing to give up blood family for the sake of God's kingdom. What do you make of the kinds of men he chooses to be his ambassadors, his, his deputies, his representatives? I mean, these are, there's not a Pharisee among them that I can tell. Um, no chief priests, no elders of the people. I mean, these are fishermen, um, one's a tax collector, seems to be a complete mistake on Jesus's part socially, uh, and then one's a zealot, and so these guys are not going to be getting along naturally. Uh, I don't know, anything you see here that uh, we, we should be thinking about and applying uh, in our lives? It reminds me of Jesus himself in Isaiah 53, a root out of a dry ground. There's no beauty or comeliness that we should desire. Um, he didn't, uh, like, I don't know if y'all have paid attention online to like mega churches and see what type of people they choose, like to be the youth pastors and stuff. You know, there's, uh, there, there's a lot of marketing that goes on in churches now. And, uh, Jesus didn't pick out, Jesus didn't come, uh, fitting a marketing scheme. And he didn't figure out apostles based on that either. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, one of the parables Jesus tells of the uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, if, if you're coming to Jesus because uh, you think you are someone that Jesus really needs, um, that's <laughs> that's that's not what Jesus is looking for. And that's the Pharisee. You know, God, look how great I am. Look, look how much you really need me. Look look what, uh, you know, I'm capable of and all these kinds of things. Um, and that's, you know, opposed to the tax collector who just says, God, I need you, um, you know, be merciful to me, a, a sinner. Um, the, the apostles, um, when Jesus calls them, are not special. Um, they have a lot of growth. Um, he calls, you know, James and John, the, the sons of thunder, which is not a compliment as far as I understand. Um, you know, it, Jesus will spend a lot of time rebuking James and John for their attitudes towards others and towards themselves and towards even the other apostles. 
Um, they just have a lot of growth to do. But what made these men good men were they were willing to stick with Jesus when no one else was and learn and be transformed. Um, and they at least understood that, that they needed Jesus. Jesus didn't need them. Um, and I think that's important for all of us to, to realize. Yeah. There's, there's one particular Christian that often comes to my mind. Um, he's, he's, uh, he, he has had so many problems over the years, so many things he struggled with, uh, temptations, um, you know, just, just different character things that he works through and he has his ups and downs, but he's, he just won't quit. He just won't quit. And, um, there are other people that, uh, other Christians I've known, maybe even people that I've helped to convert and all kinds of, um, all kinds of ability. I think there's all kinds of opportunity for this person. They could really make an impact in the kingdom and then give it a year or two and they've fallen away. Uh, Jesus is not looking for accomplished, well-polished people because he can't do a thing with them. He's looking for people who are just going to submit everything to them. And if they have some ability, great, Jesus can use that. But if they don't, look what Jesus chooses here. He, he chooses these 12. And the most remarkable thing about them, I think, is exactly what you said, John, is that they're just not going to give up. They're not going to quit. You mentioned John 6 earlier. At the end of John 6, all of the Jesus' disciples have left except for the 12. And he turns to them, I think, almost, almost in sorrow. Uh, are you going to leave too? And, and Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And he, they just, when it gets right down to it, there's nothing left for us to do but follow Jesus. And those are the kind of people who are going to stick around, and who are going to learn, who are going to be trained. And Jesus gives them authority to preach, uh, gives them authority over demons. Uh, they have some share in the power of the kingdom because they realize where the power lies. It's in Jesus. A sinful woman washing Jesus' feet in Luke 7 is not thinking about how lucky Jesus is that she's going to follow. Good discussion, guys. Our time is up. Let's close down. Yeah, thank you guys for uh, discussing that. Um, the next time that we're in Mark, we'll pick up there in verse 22 of Mark 3. Um, so to our audience, if you have any questions about what we've discussed today, um, you can give those to us. We'd be happy to talk more about that with you guys. Uh, or if you have any other questions you'd like us to discuss outside of Mark, any Bible topics or uh, current events or things that you would just like us to discuss biblical approaches to, um, that's what we want to do. We want to answer your questions. And so you can give those to us at BibleQuest.tv throughout the week, and we'll be looking at those and preparing for our next shows. But that's all we have for this week. So we'll plan on seeing everyone next Tuesday, Lord willing.